0: Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by uk Aid, australian Aid, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast. My name is Yue Yi and I'm a research fellow at the RISE directorate and today I'm speaking with Louise Crouch, is a senior economist at RTI's International Development Group and he's also a member of the RISE Research Directorate and Intellectual Leadership Team. And Luis brings to this conversation today decades of experience in development and education with work in dozens of countries including South Africa, Egypt, Peru and Indonesia. So today we have a wide-ranging conversation looking at big picture questions like the relationship between educational development and broader national and socioeconomic development, the importance of purpose in education systems change, the question of agency and who should set agendas in education systems, as well as the challenges of coordination, unintended consequences, and emergent roles of the game in complex education systems. Welcome to the RISE podcast, Louise. It's great to have you.
1: Sure. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited about this conversation. And I wanted to start by taking advantage of your really vast experience in education and development. And to start with a really big picture question. So how should we think about the relationship between socio economic development, and the development of the education system? And I mean, these are obviously interlinked, by, I think, beliefs about how they're related can influence how we think about what is possible and what should be aspired to in education in developing countries and on one hand you have people say like Rick Kaneshek and and, um, Ludger Vostman arguing in the knowledge capital of nations that knowledge or cognitive skills or student learning are key to a country's development but on the other hand you have any number of scatter plots where you have countries GDP per capita on the x-axis and PISA scores on the y-axis, which could be interpreted as implying that education and learning sort of are just a natural byproduct of economic growth. So what's your take?
1: Well, m- my take is that it's both things. It's it's mutual causation. Now, for, for kind of maybe obvious reasons, as educators, we like to emphasize the causality that runs from, from education to development. Um, and, and I must say, there's, there's, there's a lot of good evidence for that, starting with, you know, historical, big-picture big historical evidence. We know, for instance, that a country such as Japan has um, extremely high income per capita, um, you know, developed bullet trains, you know, are really good at electronics. I mean, it's a highly, highly developed nation. And yet it has no real physical resources. I mean, it has no iron. It has no coal. Um, it doesn't have huge, you know, vast amounts of agricultural land. Uh, what it has is brains, educated brains. Um, and historically, we also refer to cases such as the recovery of Germany after the Second World War, when Germany's economy was completely destroyed, and yet, within I don't know, maybe ten or fifteen years, they were pretty much back to where they were, or maybe even better, because the human capital that was in the brains of people um, was was not was not destroyed. In fact, it cannot be destroyed. So, uh, education is not only causally related to development, but it's 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 um. Uh, it's also kind of hard to destroy, so it's it's a very resilient uh, resource to have in a in a society or or an economy. And there's lots of other evidence. There's rate of return studies from from uh, household surveys that show educated people make more money. Uh, there's the, the as you said the the the, the stuff by uh, Hanushek and, and Wussman and, and also Andreas Schleicher from from Pisa have shown. Uh, correlations uh, where you typically have uh, education on the on the horizontal axis and some measure of GDP on the on the vertical axis, but so so that's you know that's what we tend to emphasize. And and there's also I mean sociological impact on broader issues of development such as maternal mortality. We know that when women have their births attended by uh, professionals um, or educated people, there's uh, a smaller amount of of, of, of maternal mortality and, and and child mortality, and typically, you know, trained midwives and nurses have to have at least a secondary school education. So there's it's 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 common sense, and there's and there's empirical evidence. Um, that said, and 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 of course we as educators like to emphasize all that because that kind of justifies investment in education and not just not only justifies investment but it justifies intellectual attention such as that devoted to education by the rise project it it justifies a lot of intellectual uh you know a lot of intellectual doing a lot of intellection um if if education is causally important to development but on that side, I think we have to be really realistic. Um, if, if, if you try to use education to really push on economic and social development, you're going to run into constraints because, for instance, um, you, you have the situation where if, if a society is very undereducated, very underliterate, let's say, it's just going to be hard to find teachers um because teachers educated people will be scarce they'll they'll be needed in many sectors of the economy they'll command a, a, a wage premium and so it's going to be hard to find teachers um, and you'll have to pay them a lot um, uh, and 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 that uh, uh, that's a that's a clear constraint um, we know f- you know from studies by development agencies that you know, in in the starting stages of of big pushes like the the push for education for all or, or or the fast track initiative or now GPE, uh, you know, there are countries where teachers cost uh, ten times uh, GDP per capita or, or five times, when the recommended amount is around three times, and in and in and in wealthy countries it's around one or two times. So it just it's it's expensive to to afford education. So, so you know it, it, that argues for a measured approach where you yes you you use education to push uh, for for a development push, um, uh, but but you also have to realize that that there are constraints. Now, I think part of the answer to all this is that because there are these constraints and yet it is so important, um, it highlights the points that, that that I think we'll discuss in a while uh, around purpose. You, you have to have a, a firm sense of purpose so that you have the drive to overcome the constraints. Uh, if you have to pay your teachers more, well then you pay them more, and, and you make the sacrifices needed uh, needed to do that. So, So I think this duality of education being both cause and effect of development, um, um, a it's true that there is that mutual causality. But to the degree that you can kind of break that a little bit, it's through uh, kind of a sense of national purpose, a sense of, of real drive. And and you and you saw that in Japan. Um, you see it in China today. You see it in in many countries that have succeeded. So um, I think I think that's. Um, yeah, I think that's part of it.
0: Uh, lots to dig into there. And let's let's dig into that a bit, specifically on the purpose point. So uh, I think I fully agree with you that education is both a cause and effect of sort of broader development trends in societies and that it's a dual relationship. Um, but I think you're also very right to, I think, one implication of what you're saying is that uh, there's a role here for agency and leadership and decision-making and purpose. And these are actually often things that, as our colleagues in maybe more critical strands of education research and sociology would remind us that really matter, even if we're looking at big picture national things. So so to what degree is this broader role for education in national development?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's big, um, and I think, or, or it, let me say it, it can be big, um, but in order to, to realize that, to make it real, um, you, you have to, it, it goes through that issue or, or, or causal factor, if you will, of, of purpose, um, and it, it so happens I'm actually uh, doing a historical study right now of Korea and Japan, um, and not only the role that education played in their national development, because that's that's actually pretty well known, but what was done in terms of purpose, and, and how the political uh, uh, leaders uh, of uh, Japan and Korea, during their periods of, of rapid educational development, how did they position education? How did they view education? And uh, and and the periods in question are maybe Japan roughly 1860 through maybe 1920 or 30 or thereabouts and Korea maybe 1960 through maybe 1995 or something so these were kind of 30 40 year periods in which these nations made a huge push for education and um, and, and and the purpose uh factor uh how how political leaders saw a purpose to education it was very much by the way and this is different from how it's sort of done today and and that's one of the reasons i wanted to write this paper is the the purpose uh issue in um uh, japan and korea and and then later on in or more or less at the same time i guess in the case of korea and, and singapore it's 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 national greatness. It's it's building the nation to be a strong, capable, powerful nation. Um, And yes, that you know, one could say it's is you know is a double-edged sword. I mean, um, uh, you know, and one could argue that in some respects that kind of led to the Second World War. Um, But but it. It also builds nations, and and in in the nations that have made a, a really strong commitment to to national development, development of 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 um, of, of their national economy, uh, it, education uh, was seen as as playing a, a huge role in that, um, and you know that's kind of been lost today uh, in the sense that. The purpose of education is seen to be kind of narrowly economic or narrowly even social in the sense of lowering mortality rates. So so when you see all the arguments for education coming out of the global elites, it's around growing the economy, it's around all the good impacts that education has on child mortality and, and, and maternal mortality and, and and these kinds of things. And And this commitment that you saw in places like Japan. And uh, Korea, and then you know later on Singapore and China, um, and, and and you know maybe I'm citing places only in Asia, but in, in Latin America you can see it in Chile, for instance. Um, um, it, it, it's kind of watered down these days. Um, these days, it's more of a commitment, kind of narrowly uh, to things like GDP per capita, which in some sense is, is an abstraction. Um, uh, maternal mortality, uh, you know, education gets, gets pushed or, or, or touted for its role in, in, these, in these kinds of indicators, and or uh, there is a kind of commitment to international goals, such as the SDGs. And, and that's seen uh, to some degree by the global institutions as uh, sufficient, as that, 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 that commitment should be the driving commitment. Um, and yet we know from historical experience of these other countries is that there was a really solid commitment on the part of the elites to, to building the nation and to making the nation strong and, and honestly to, to avoid uh, international humiliation. You know, the, the opening up of Japan was humiliating to, to Japan. Um, the, the, the kind of shock of encountering military modernity. Uh, for Korea um, was 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 highly motivating, um, and 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 in Korea the the you know the the struggle to to become a better nation, if you will, than the North Korea uh, played played a huge role. And incidentally, you see this to some degree also in the role that education was given by the early leaders of of Africa's independence. Nyerere. Um, uh, uh, and in Ghana, um, uh, Kenyatta in, in Kenya, th- they all assigned this kind of primal role to to education, and I, I would argue that that that's been substantially lost, and and it's 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 hard to know how to get it back. Um, I think w- one one thought is that uh, if you want to reclaim, you know, you can you can hold on to the role of education in, in helping economic growth um, by getting economic elites in the countries to to understand this and to and to push for education. But it's kind of hard to do sometimes. And um, it works in a country that is clearly articulating a need to compete uh, with with other nations uh, economically and and not just a vague commitment to GDP growth, but an actual and real commitment uh, for export drives, such as in Chile's, um, um, let's say, uh, fisheries uh, pushes, and their wine industry pushes that it made it very clear that you needed to have a highly, highly trained uh, labor force. Um, So it's, it's not an abstract thing like GDP is. Let's export better and more fish. Let's export better and more wine. Uh, that that kind of highly concrete uh, push. Um, uh, so, but other countries are not necessarily trying to compete economically, or, or you know, are kind of insular and not, you know, they don't have very open economies, um, and so it's hard to make those kinds of arguments there. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'd be good to to sort of go back to history and, and learn from countries that, that really gave education a crucial role in building the nation and, and, and creating a proud and, and, and uh, nation, if not necessarily a great nation, at least one that, that can hold its head up and, and be proud.
0: One reflection on what you are saying, Luis, is that um, I think these debates and tensions about whether education at the national and societal level should be for economic reasons, utilitarian reasons, um, versus for nation building, for national empowerment, actually mirrored really by tensions and debates about on the level of the individual child, like should we educate individual children to improve their career prospects so they get certified and can get into university? Or is the core purpose of education more for empowering the child, for giving them dignity, for giving them agency over their own futures?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's a very good parallel to the macro picture, and I think if you if you ask parents uh, rather than sort of making decisions for them, but actually ask them um, what they want, uh, they typically want both. Now it, it it will vary by the by level of income. So I think in poor countries and may want to emphasize and and, and do probably emphasize the. The economic value of education. I mean, a big motivator in 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 Africa, for example, is well known to be that, uh, particularly early on, in order to get a civil service job, you need you needed an education, and so that was that was a big motivator is get, getting a job uh, in the formal sector, if possible, uh, or yeah, even in the in the bureaucracy, if possible, um, because that was a way out of poverty. Now, you know, as as people as countries develop a bit more, and and also in general. Parents definitely want something beyond uh, getting a job. You can see it, for example, in some societies uh, in the role that um, uh, sports play in school. I mean, in in the U.S., uh, the sports program of the school is a huge attractor to to parents. And then they devote a lot of effort to it. Um, I've worked in other countries that are kind of sports crazy, like South Africa. And it's a big deal. Whether the whether the school has a good team, and and that's because parents intuit that there are broader skills of, of teamwork, of collaboration, of of not giving up, of, of grit uh, that are learned uh, by by playing in a sports team or or by being in the school's uh, orchestra or whatever. And 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 um, and yeah, I think that's parents want that now. You know, a, a question becomes then. Whether it's an obligation for the public purse, for the fisc, mm-hmm. you know, for for the government to fund those kinds of things, and you know, there one could have a bit more of a debate, and 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 one could say, well, if parents want that that badly, maybe they should, you know, contribute a bit more, and it shouldn't be uh, the government that funds the entire sports uh, teams and 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 musical bands and and so on and so forth. Um, you know that that could be debated, um, but that parents want it in general. I think it's pretty clear, uh, especially as 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 they begin to deal with issues of dire poverty and and begin to move up the the income stream until you get sort of middle income countries and and higher income countries. Definitely,
0: I think we'll come back to that a bit later on. But since we're talking about uh, sort of different levels in which education systems manifest, and circling back to the question. Of purpose. I was wondering if you could just give a couple of concrete examples of what it looks like when the top decision makers in a country are truly committed to cultivating student learning. And also, if you have any examples at the school or classroom level, because my understanding is that you did experience this yourself um, when you were growing up in the Dominican Republic.
1: Sure. Well, I I mean, I I think you begin to see learning. the, the centrality of learning in, in many, many ways. For example, um, when, when I was a child uh, in the Dominican Republic in the 1950s, when I learned to read, it was unbelievably celebrated. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, at the end of grade one and, and in the school I went to, and I think really in most of the Dominican Republic in those days, um, pretty much, if you did grade one, you learned how to read. That's been lost in Latin America. You have a lot of kids going through grade one and cannot read at the end. Um, but in those days, maybe because education was relatively a, a bit of an elite thing, um, kids who went to school did learn to read by the end of grade one. Now, Spanish is easy to to mm-hmm. to learn to read. So, but anyway, it, it was huge. There, you know, I got a certificate that was probably half a meter by half a meter uh, with all kinds of, <laughs> it was kind of humorous. I'm, I still have it. Um, you know, very formal looking and signed in person with ink by five officials. <laughs> wow. Big deal. Um, and, and you know, that's just, that's the kind of, you know, that kind of valuing of education is is pervasive in systems that truly value it. You'll, you'll go to the ministry and you find out Who are the most talented people? They're the ones in charge of the curriculum and the teacher training um, and and so on. Uh, If that's the case, that's a good sign. Um, Is the top talented in the talent in the ministry, has the top talent been given a mandate from the minister to really attend to education? Um, Another telltale sign is whether the minister or some fairly high level is holding accountable the people that most directly affect learning, let's say the people in charge Mm -hmm. of lesson planning, the people in charge of textbook design, forcing them, uh, and I use the word advisedly, forcing them uh, to work as a team, to work together, and yet you go to many ministries and the people in charge of exams, the people in charge of testing and assessment, the people in charge of textbooks, the people in charge of curriculum, the people in charge of teacher support. Are all working on their own, each with their own program. The programs are not coordinated. You 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 have stuff in the lesson plans that doesn't match what's in the textbooks. It's 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 pretty bad. Um, and but but you can be sure that when you went to Korea in the nineteen sixties or seventies, this stuff was very tightly managed, um, and things were really coordinated with each other. In fact, uh, we can talk about it maybe a little bit later. But one of the characteristics of of the purpose-driven nature of, of reform in, in Korea and Japan is how they how how they used foreign aid, foreign assistance, um, or in the case of Japan, it wasn't even foreign aid. But but Japan made a very conscious effort of sending emissaries to all over the world to get the best out of every education system that they could study and then integrate those. Make those uh, endogenize them to Japan and and, and, and the Jap- the Japanese culture and way of being, in a very integrated way. And Korea, for example, made extremely adroit use of uh, assistance from a place called the Learning Systems Institute at the at the at, at, at the Florida at Florida State University with money from USAID, but very much the Koreans in charge. Uh, the Koreans were in charge, and they they they. They took a very systematic and systemic approach to to their education reform, where all the inputs into the education process of the child were tightly integrated and coordinated: curriculum, assessment, teacher training, everything tightly integrated and, and highly functional. And you don't see that in a lot of ministries. So that would be one telltale sign of of, of a system that is either working on on quality or 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 not. Um, I think there's there may be a, a, a RISE paper that, that has a, actually a kind of little checklist of uh, telltale signs of when a system is actually truly devoted to quality and learning. I don't know if that paper has come out or not, but uh, it's something to perhaps flag.
0: Okay, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes if it's out by the time this runs out. Yeah, and I think actually speaking of RISE things, um, our first RISE podcast with Zingai Mutumbuka, who was the first... Uh, education minister of zimbabwe he talks it's fascinating he talks about how when they really needed secondary teachers really quickly they got some from australia some from the uk some from canada and then he also got people from cuba to go to zimbabwe and train prospective teachers how to understand spanish so they could then go to cuba and study teaching there yeah um and and also he was very much in the driving seat in setting the agenda for what on what sort of terms he accepted what sort of aid for education because of No, Oh no, absolutely.
1: I, I I happen to know Zingai reasonably well. We collaborated a lot in designing some of the reforms for South Africa at the end of apartheid. And um, you know, he's he's a real character and and he very clear about how you do things and how you get going and, and that would be, I mean, that would be another example. I said the role of education in early independence. Well, I think he was the first minister of education right after independence, or or maybe one of the first. And 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 clearly, there was a vision there. Uh, there was agency. There was, you know, sort of not, you know, not believing everything the World Bank says or or the development agency say, but but figuring it out on, by your own and 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 being super proactive, getting out, like you said getting some some exemplar teachers. i mean colombia you know a, a country that did things fairly carefully at the end of the 19th century maybe they didn't keep it up but you know before foreign aid assist- existed when they wanted to develop their teacher training college uh, system they went out and hired six prussians from prussia because prussia at the time had a reputation as intentionally developing a high quality education system gave them six year contracts Hired nine of them, or maybe would, they hired six and gave them nine-year contracts. I don't know. But this kind of thing was unheard of these days—that a country would purposefully go out, uh, especially with donor funding, and hire six people and embed them in their ministry to develop a, a system. It, it seldom happens. Certainly not with the intentionality that Colombia did it in the end of the 19th century, or or that indeed Zingai uh, Mutumbuka. Uh, did it in, in in Zimbabwe in in you know um, right after in, soon after independence, so it, it happens a little bit. But with that kind of intentionality and drive, not much.
0: So I think all of this raises a slightly sticky question for those of us who care a lot about education, but are working in international development or are based in the global north. Um, in that if purpose and commitment are so central, and given that purpose in any kind of meaningful sense is the prerogative of the nation and should be articulated by the nation, um, what can we say legitimately about national education systems and what should be prioritized, whether in terms of ethical legitimacy or legitimacy of cross-context learning? And I think, interestingly, this also sort of a global analog of what you were saying about parents and priorities and funding extracurriculars at the school level within country. But yeah.
1: Yeah. That. yeah. Um, I mean, I think you see some recognition of the importance of national priorities and national sovereignty, if you will, in a lot of the more recent trends in, in things like the Paris accord and, and putting countries in the driver's seat when it comes to designing uh, or co-designing, um, uh, Foreign aid programs and such, but I, I think a lot of it is, uh, honestly, uh, lip service. I'm not sure how real it always is, but partly I would say it's it's the the countries themselves uh, sort of got into this situation. I, I remember uh, visiting with a minister of education in a certain country and talking to them to, to him and and saying you know, all the Paris Accord and, you know, the way various organizations work, they they, they want you to be in the driver's seat and they think you should have, a, there should be a local education group of a, a club of, of donors plus the government officials that work together so that we can understand your priorities better and so on. And, and 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 he said, no, I know my own priorities. I don't want the donors collaborating <laughs> with each other and ganging up on me. I have a very clear set of priorities, and I want to be able to tell each donor what to do, uh, not have them you know, in endless meetings discussing things. So I think um, one of the things here is that the countries themselves just have to take that kind of leadership, uh, and, in, and in a very real way, in a very strong way, uh, not just sort of make a bureaucratic game out of so-called countries being in the in the driver's seat so if countries themselves don't do that it's you know uh, the international community will sort of uh, continue to just play lip service to the notion of the countries being truly in the driver's seat but one one way for the international community to respond is to work more and work better and and, and and give more attention to the countries that truly are acting as if they care about education and as if uh, and if and if the leadership is truly in the driver's seat um, and 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 you know just kind of prioritize those countries for uh, for programming um, um, that's 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 one thing. The other, though, is that some of this influence gets diffused over the years and and gets taken up voluntarily. I mean, uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, I forget the exact quote, but he said something like, "Madmen in power who think that all the ideas that they have are their own are actually influenced by, the scribblings of some (laughs) defunct economist from, you know, 20 years ago. So, you know, ideas have a way of spreading and get taken up by the countries um, sooner or later. um, And um, and they diffuse and they eventually come to be owned by the countries. Let's take the example of the whole emphasis on girls' education. I, I mean, this is not something that rose out of you know, 100,000 villages in the developing world that sort of all spontaneously woke up <laughs> and said girls' education is important. No, it was it was more something that came up through a kind of dialogue between national progressive elites, if you will, and the global elite. And, and, and you had, you know, people like, I don't know if it was in the 80s or early 90s or whatever, but people like Larry Summers at the World Bank uh, declaring how important girls' education is, and and then the backup of research from people like Beth King and, and and many others in the late 80s, early 90s, and so on, and that started producing a lot of evidence, and that slowly gets into the consciousness of of countries, um, and 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 slowly begins to be accepted and owned and pushed for by by the countries themselves. And I think another angle on this issue of national sovereignty and 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 putting countries in the driver's seat and and so on is that countries are not monoliths. You know, countries are in some sense uh, an aggregation or an abstraction or, or or something like that, that what you have in countries is really different interest groups and different points of view and different uh, groups. So um, in the case of girls education, it got taken up by certain elements within, within the, the 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 thought leaders of those countries who came to see these things uh, either right away or gradually and began to own them and began to advocate and then NGOs did it and local think tanks did it and and grassroots people eventually started doing it so so these things can can take some time to build up and 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 so on and so you know the thought that these things are imposed is is, is not quite right, but the thought that it spontaneously arises from the very grassroots is, is also typically not right. It's, it's more of this kind of interaction between uh, people who perceive there to be a need for these things, kind of in amongst the, the, the policymakers and policy elites of the countries, um, grassroots oriented NGOs, but, but maybe not the grassroots themselves and, and the, international, uh, the international elites.
0: So to follow up on what we were saying about countries in the driving seat who sets the agenda, um, I would be curious to hear your reflections a bit about uh, international community and foundational literacy and numeracy goals. And this is something that uh, I have been personally thinking about and reflecting on, given that when I was teaching in Malaysia, I had 16 year olds who were basically illiterate despite having spent 10 or 11 years in school. Um, but where I've landed is that I actually feel pretty comfortable saying that every education system should teach every child foundational literacy and numeracy. Anything above that, the country should decide what goes in the curriculum. That's their prerogative. Um, but I think I'm personally willing to draw a line in the sand and say, this is the baseline that everyone should provide. But then that also gets tricky because you have all sorts of when a measure becomes a target sorts of problems, and sometimes it feels understandably, I think, to some people that rather than it being prescribed as a baseline, it's prescribed as the ultimate aspiration that less developed countries should aspire to. So any thoughts on any of these thorny issues?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think the international community, and in some cases, well, maybe the countries themselves, but certainly the international community, I think uh, they make way too much out of this. It's it's. It gets. Uh, there's this injection of of kind of ah. Uh, oh, this needs to be debate, but needs to be debated. Needs to be. But a, it's already in the country's curriculums. I mean, if if you look at the curriculum of any country, that's the expectation: is that kids will be able to read. And and, it's clear in the curriculum that that is the foundation. Um, and that in the first year or two, you're learning to read, and then later on, you read to learn. This is not, this is not rocket. This is not like some new uh, dangerous idea coming from somewhere. It's in every <laughs> single curriculum in the world, uh, pretty much. Um, now, maybe how you learn to read, there could be some somewhat ideological debates uh, around that, but that it should be a priority. It's there already. And I think what the international community can do, and, and, and to some degree, the countries themselves have to take responsibility, is making sure that it is happening, that it is happening, in fact, as well as, it, as, the, as the curricular expectations of every single country state. Now, it's true that in some countries, the curricular expectations are kind of qualitative and verbal and discursive, and maybe they don't have... Uh, kind of numerical targets, um, and I, I think that's fine. I think a country can 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 have numerical targets or benchmarks or whatever you want to call them, um, kind of more operational, and they don't need to be given the weight, the intellectual weight of, of that the curriculum itself has. Um, you know, they can they can they can adopt benchmarks temporarily as 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 um, just operational guidelines in how you actually implement the curriculum. Um, and all, but but moreover, countries have already signed up to the SDGs and the SDGs are clear that kids should be able to learn to read and do basic math by the end of grades two or three. But the SDGs themselves, which the countries also signed on to, are clear, that there are other goals uh, toward the end of, of of primary or lower secondary, adult literacy, digital literacy, all these kinds of things. Now, one could argue as to, you know, the priority given to those and, and and so on. But countries have already signed on to a broad agenda. Countries' curricula already say that reading and numeracy are foundational, and 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 that you learn to read um, in the first grade or two. Um, they're just not doing a good job at it. Uh, in fact, I'd say they're doing a shamefully bad job at it. Um, and, and that's pretty clear to anyone that has gone around schools in the developing world and tried to get kids to read to them. And you know, if you go to the poorer regions of, 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 of almost all countries, and, and if you go to almost anywhere in some of the poorer countries, half the kids at the end of grade one or two can't even read the most common words in their language and that's I, I think that's morally reprehensible and shameful uh, not not to put too fine a point in it <laughs> in case people are wondering how I think about it and what' makes it more shameful is that it's already a goal in in the curriculum it's already a goal that they signed up to when they when they agreed to the SDGs so um, you know let's let's get moving um, uh, yeah, I, I can state this very quickly because I feel so strongly about it. And I think it's so evident and so obvious that anything other than getting moving on it is, is a moral failing.
0: Well, on that bracing note <laughs> and call to action, um, the final question that we ask to any guest on the Rise podcast is, what is one thing you wish other people knew about education systems?
1: Okay. Um, this is probably more directed to analysts, um, more than sort of the, the broad public, uh, researchers, analysts, uh, mm-hmm. officials. Uh, two things uh, about how systems are viewed or, 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 or attempted to be understood, uh, often by officials or, or NGOs or think tanks. Um, one is around the systems themselves um, and, and and analyzing systems. And the other one is, trying to understand the characteristics that derive from systems. So uh, one is on systems themselves, uh, typically the way I see education systems being analyzed is that the officials or sometimes in collaboration with foreign uh, assistants will take each bit of the system, namely let's say the curricular stuff or the assessment or mm-hmm. Relations with the parents and and the norms for school governance and uh, the teacher training system and all that and and they they rate or rank or whatever the quality with which each of those things is being done and that's that's pretty good that's 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 a start but what makes education systems work well or not work well and I already alluded to this earlier on in the podcast. <laughs> Is how well each of those systems works with each other. Is In terms of a flowchart, your, your classical systems analysis flowchart, it's not the health of each box in the flowchart or each square in the flowchart. It's the health of the arrows that link the flowcharts. And that's almost never studied. Mm-hmm. It's almost never studied whether the curriculum people, the assessment people, the teacher training people, have regular meetings every month, check on each other, hold each other accountable. Mm-hmm. That's an important factor, hold each other accountable for delivering on what they said they would do, um, and and whether that's all working together. And there's not only links between them, but feedback links so that the assessment people can hold the textbook people accountable and saying, you know, we had agreed that this would be in the assessment. Why is it not in the textbook? Um, or, or vice versa, that that the the textbook people can say, well, we agreed to put this in the textbook if it would be in the assessment. Well, we don't see it in the assessment. Where is it? That kind of accountability internal to the ministry fails in a lot of, a lot of cases. I've seen countries where um, there's a question in the grade six or seven uh, um, science uh, test, that requires you to use algebra, and yet algebra is not taught in that country until grade eight. That, that's a failure. That's a that's a crass yeah. failure in coordination, yeah. and it happens all the time. So I think that's one system's thing that I would wish people knew more and understood the importance of more, and 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 actually, you know, that officials hold each other accountable, but hold their system. Accountable for not holding them accountable, if you will, that that there aren't these coordination mechanisms, and and that are or they're there, but they're kind of lip service and not very strong. Um, the the second point is that systems um, have results that are often not intended by anyone, um, mm-hmm. and 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 in fact, those are the most important results in some cases. Where so you know, there's one of my favorite examples of systems is when. Wolves, when wolves were reintroduced into the Yellowstone um, National Park in the U.S., um, that controlled the population of mammals such as deer or, or elk or whatever those mammals are called. I can't remember, and um, and that uh, allowed. Um, uh, those mammals, those larger mammals like deer were no longer eating the little trees and because the little trees survived, that stabilized the riverbanks and the riverbanks became more stable um, and 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 those trees also allowed uh, the ecosystem for beaver, beaver are those little mammals that build dams in rivers. And so the whole ecosystem started recovering because of the introduction of wolves or at least it's hypothesized I'm not sure the proof is perfect that, that this actually happened although it is it did happen that the population of deer got controlled. So the wolves don't intend didn't intend to stabilize the river system. that was not an intention of the wolves and in fact it wasn't even an intention of the ecologists who introduced it. they just wanted to control the deer population um, And so it, sometimes these very powerful effects uh, within systems are due to, the rules of the game and not to a stated intentionality of the system. And, and those rules of the game are very powerful. And unfortunately, in many countries, the rules of the game, implicit or explicit rules of the game, actually conspire against the stated aim of the system. The stated aim of the system might be to produce learning. But the way the system actually works is that the ministry is an employment agency or is a way of rewarding political allegiances or propping up the, the party in power through through um, you know through through clientelism and and so on. And 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 those rules, implicit even even though they may be, are extremely powerful and, and actually work against the stated purpose of the system. So systems have what are called emergent properties. And in the example I gave of the ecosystem, an emergent property Maybe the stabilization of of, of the river uh, system uh, and the control of the erosion. In the case of education, the stated aim might be that kids should learn, but the implicit rules of the game are about rewarding uh, political allegiances, and you know that those may or may not be compatible. Um, um, yeah. Um, so so I think that's studying the emergent properties of systems and how the rules of the game drive. Um, uh, either either drive the, the good stated aims or, or drive unstated aims that are not so good. Uh, I think that needs to be looked at more, more often.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that, Luis. I feel like every time I hear you speak, uh, I come away with many new insights and several new research questions.
1: <laughs> That's good, I guess. <laughs> it could be frustrating, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, potentially frustrating, but also much more exciting. So thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE programme through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.